All right. If you would like to turn with me, we are in the book of Philippians, and um, of course, naturally, logically, I was in chapter 2 last week, now I'm going back to chapter 1. So we'll be in Philippians 1. We're going to go back and look at some introductory things that Paul said. We're going to explain the context um, to why he said them, and hopefully we can all glean something, obviously, from it. So the the verses I'm going to read today are uh, chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Sabbath rest that you've given us today. Pray, Father, that you indeed draw near to us to give us rest and give us hope, to encourage us and strengthen us. We pray, Father, that you now um, do surgery on our hearts with your word, that you cut out the idols and sins, Father, and that you strengthen us and bind us up stronger than we were before. I pray, Father, that you open us up to your word. pray, Father, that you declare your truth to us, and give us eyes and ears to hear it. We thank you for this opportunity, Father, and we pray that we make the most of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, one of the concerns that Paul had about the Philippian church was that they were actually losing their unity. And he was worried because when you lose your unity, you lose potency in the mission field. The trials of life were dampening their fellowship. But Paul doesn't go after the specifics of their disunity. He's more subtle than that. He tells them, again, what they already know about Jesus Christ. He reminds them of Jesus' union with them, which is the basis of their union with one another. Paul is full of joy because of the Philippians' partnership with him, which means fellowship in the gospel. Partnership there in verse 3, or I'm sorry, in verse 5, partnership in the gospel, is actually, it, it stems from this word group we've all heard before, koinonia. Have you guys heard that word before? Koinonia, fellowship. That's right, the Greek brother back there. So he, he uses this word, it's, it's partnership in the gospel, and then he says, partakers with me of grace in, in verse 7. Both of those words are come from the same word. It's this fellowship. So he's writing to them about their fellowship. And he uses this word nine times in this very small letter. And, and this is why he's being very subtle. He's not coming right after their disunity. He's talking about what unifies them. He reminds them of what they have, and he doesn't go after these other things that they shouldn't have. It's, it, it's very clever. It's a, um, the word koinonia, the koinonia family group, as it's called, there's a lot of words that spring from it. It's actually very difficult to translate. I know Dean has done a number of sermons over the last few years just on that word alone. Um, and you should go on the website and look up some of those. I, they'll have fellowship in the title, if, if you're curious. But I think the Philippians give us a very succinct and very clear vision of what fellowship is all about. Christians are not Christians in isolation. They share a fundamental union with one another, and it isn't football, it's not wine clubs, and it's not a passion for apologetics. We are united to Christ, and therefore united to one another. And what we share is the gospel. It's what unites us, and it's our mission. One of the reasons Paul is writing a letter to the Philippian church is to thank them for the financial support, the partnership, as he calls it, in his need. Many times, the Philippian church uh, collected and dispensed funds. They were well-known for giving well beyond their means, both to Paul and to uh, 
other missionaries in his group and to other churches that were in need. Um, Philippi was a Roman colony, just some background here. It's a very rare thing to be a colony of Roman of Rome. Uh, it, was, it was something bestowed upon them because glorious battles had happened near the city of Philippi, and, and they were rewarded, bestowed with this um, citizenship. And so they shared these wonderful things being Roman, even though they weren't in ne- what was necessarily the Roman Empire. Um, and so in Philippi, what usually united everyone was being Roman. Uh, and, and it was a they did not take kindly to anyone who wanted a fellowship outside of being Roman. So when the Christians come along, of course, and say, well, Jesus is Lord, and the Romans there are Rome, you know, they're very Roman, no, Caesar is Lord, you clearly have a problem, right? You're going to have a conflict of interest. And the Christians in Philippi were persecuted greatly, um, ferociously. Um, but despite all of this, the Philippian Christians rallied around the grace they shared in Christ, and their mission was grace. This is what they were known for. Their fellowship was the reception and distribution of grace. So let's look at Paul's description of the Philippian church in the second letter to the Corinthians. He actually describes them wonderfully there. If you turn with me, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2 through 5. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God, to us. Paul wants the Corinthians, in the letter to the Corinthians, to know about the grace of God demonstrated in the Philippians. He's using them as an example. Regardless of severe affliction, their joy and poverty overflowed and generosity beyond their means as they begged to take part in the relief of fellow Christians. This is a testimony of the power of the gospel to unite and empower a community. Paul used the Philippians as an example to the Corinthians, and now in the book of Philippians, Paul is using the past to remind the Philippians of the grace of which they have participated since the first day they believed. That's why he's mentioning this. He's reminding them of what they've always known, how they've always been known. But how does this apply to us? What does this have to do with us? Well, what binds Christians together in a community? What is the basis of our society together? Is it proximity? Is it reformed theology? Is it liturgy, homeschooling, a love of festive gatherings? We know we have a lot of those. Is it covenantal living? What binds us all together? What is the foundational bedrock that unites us as Christians and as Redeemer? The Philippian church was struggling because they were losing the transforming power of their unity. The cares of life, the trials and struggles, the weariness of the race was breaking down the unifying power of the gospel in their midst. I think we are very similar. Some of us remember times of deep fellowship that are gone now. A lot of us have a lot of kids. We homeschool. We have jobs. We have busy schedules and so on. When I say that we lack unity which I believe we do as a church in a lot of ways, it's not because we're hostile towards one another. I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. We don't have open strife here. Dean and I do not have spend most of our meetings sitting down working things out between two families in the church. That really just doesn't happen. Our disunity is common to our modern, fragmented culture and stems more from our ignorance, I think, than willful, than willful sin. Uh, what I hear all the time in churches... I visit churches, I I know pastors, everyone talks about how do you have this kind of Acts 2 thing going 
where everyone's living together and sharing everything when people live 20 miles from one another. I think we all struggle against the spirit of the age, which is this sort of spread out, individualized lifestyle that we all live. And I think, really, our, our lack of unity comes is very cultural. I don't think it's because any of us were like, you know what, I think I'm going to lack some unity. I think that seems good. No, nobody makes that decision. It's kind of forced upon us. But, but this is what I want to talk about today. Um, as humans, we like people who we like, okay? There's things that pile up upon, on top of this cultural disunity that we have. As human beings, we like people who like what we like, right? It's natural to seek out and associate with people for whom we have an affection. There is nothing wrong with having friendships and shared interests. Having people over to feed them and enjoy their company is gracious, but it's not the same thing that unified the Philippians or should unify us in our daily lives. There are acts of abundant grace that go on here all the time in this church, but can we honestly say that the nature of our community is gospel fellowship? I think at this point we have to ask ourselves that. Is that really gospel fellowship? Is that what defines this church? Redeemer is a family, and family is very different than friendship. We all know this. Family is more difficult. You don't choose family members. Modern Christian communities fail to have really meaningful fellowship because we approach community like friendship instead of family, I, I think is an honest reality for most of us. Our natural propensity is to make divisions, separating and uniting based on personal preferences, on theology, consuming alcohol, not consuming alcohol, our pastimes, being grandparents, and, of course, the Seahawks. We are extremely busy, true, but we also don't like people who bring attention to our indwelling sin, people who expose our intolerance, people who expose our lack of grace. Have you ever noticed that there are people who bring out the worst in you? <laughs> you always seem to say something stupid around them, and they always seem to notice. They always seem to irritate you. They never think you're as clever or funny as your wife does. You guys ever experienced that? I experienced that last one all the time. And some of the people that I'm talking about, I think we all know, are sitting in this room with us. I mean, this is the way Christian communities go, right? You don't choose your family, and this is your family. So you don't choose the people sitting around you. Families include people who know your ugly side, who see through the social pleasantries. We don't like that. We avoid that. I, I, I'm, my older brother sees through my social pleasantries like nobody I've ever known, and I, I hate that about him. <laughs> I can't pretend to be anything but what I actually am around him. So it's actually at times really refreshing. And that's the kind of relationship, I think, that, that we should have with one another. Where the social pleasantries, that nice facade we all wear as upper middle classmen, um, disappears. Friends are far more forgiving. We all know this. So we develop forgivable sins. So-and-so is just rough around the edges. It's not about his lack of humility. <laughs> we, ever, right, we have this thing with friends. We overlook a lot. And it's because that's partially what friendship is all about. So if you treat church like friendship instead of family, you tend to gather around yourself people who are very forgiving. And then what you end up developing are forgivable sins. Friends tend to have the same weaknesses because they tend to have very similar personalities. And so we develop blind spots. We develop communal blind spots. Communities, rather, or communities rally around two things, usually. Subjects and proximity. Those that develop around larger subjects, like Reformed theology develop all the communal blind spots of Reformed people, and we all have experienced that a little bit, I think. Those who rally around proximity, mere ease, tend to rally around mere ease and develop the communal sins of apathy and low standards. 
Then within a larger community, smaller communities develop, or as is also common in modern American Protestantism, isolation occurs, in which loneliness and hopelessness develop where church isn't a community, but merely a building you visit once a week. I think it's time we too are reminded, just like the Philippians, that we have a deeper, a more powerful, a more joyful, and a more transforming bond in the gospel that ought to be the heart of everything we do as a church. We need a fresh understanding of our unity in Christ, his grace, and his gospel. And so what brings the church community together? What is a fellowship of the gospel? What unifies believers is that we are all partakers of grace, as he says, partakers of grace. We all partake of it, and grace is the unmerited favor of God, I might add. We are all recipients of a glorious gift that we do not deserve. What is the grace we partake of? Romans 8, through 24 says it perfectly. For there is no distinction, no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now here's where things get really interesting. God doesn't give this gift to the wise, but the foolish. God doesn't give this gift to the pious, but the wicked. God doesn't give this gift to the healthy, strong, or wealthy. God gives his grace to the low, to the bent, and to the broken. And that's what unites us. We together are the low, the bent, and the broken. You are all partakers of grace that is only offered to the lost, the blind, and the poor. What gathers us around this table is our need and the satisfaction of that need in God's grace. The gospel unites people together who may share nothing else in common with one another than a descent from Adam. That's what brings us here. We sin. We were sinners. We were the poorest, wickedest, wretchedest, unwise people in the world. And here we are together, partaking in God's grace together. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we don't need anything else for joyous, loving community than the shared experience of being lost and then found. But we are also saved every day by Jesus. We are all sinners in need of saving. We, we are all sons and daughters of the living God and struggling against the lies of Satan and sin that still indwell our flesh. That fight, that process of sanctification that we all experience unites us as allies and siblings in Christ, empowered by his Holy Spirit. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, scattered in battlefields all over the world, but you were justified by grace through faith into a family sitting here. And so was the person in front of you and beside you and behind you. No pet doctrine can divide that. No socioeconomic circumstance can divide that. No other social issue, hobby, ethnicity, or any other distinction that we could possibly think of could be a greater basis of fellowship than that. Nothing else that interests any of us. No lack of social graces, no lack of affinity could compete with the fact that we, Redeemer, live in Christ as partakers of grace together. That is what unifies us. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. Okay? We are united by grace. That's our commonality. Christian fellowship is not idealistic. It's not void of strife. It's not void of differing opinions or difficulty. It is a reality created by Christ in Christ, by grace, of which we all partake. You might be wondering what I'm talking about. You probably don't have strife with anyone. There's no difficulty. There's nothing but harmony in your life. I believe most of us are polite to one another. I don't think there are any open disagreements, respectful or otherwise, that I know about. But that's because I believe our disunity stems from avoiding vulnerability, openness, and weakness. 
in which real grace can be extended. We gather around various interests and recreations, but how often can we honestly say that we gather around the gospel, partaking in giving of grace? When most of our gatherings are light and social and fun, the real issues we are struggling with take a back seat. God united us to him to form communities formed around grace. We are supposed to be agents of grace to one another, but we avoid situations where our need is laid open and grace is extended and received. Our fellowship as Christians is supposed to be more like a family than a friendship. A marriage that's void of conflict is really unhealthy. This is something I'm very fond of saying. I meet a married couple and they tell me they, have, they don't fight ever. Fight. They never argue. And I just I start to sweat. <laughs> I start to sweat. How long, You've been married 10 years. You've never argued. Man, that is bad news. <laughs> and I think re- all relationships are this way. If you have relationships where there is never any discord of any kind, it's not really a, rela- I mean, a, a strong, healthy relationship. Two people who sin, living in intimate fellowship together, will have conflict. There's absolutely no way around it. Married couples who never have conflict are not dealing with their issues. Friends who never have conflict aren't dealing with their issues. Churches who never have conflict are not dealing with their issues. We are supposed to live within the dynamics of a family, where sanctifying tension, openness, and vulnerability require grace. Families study together. They take counsel together. They confront sin together. They are sanctified together. They do yard work together. They cook meals together. They eat them together. Think of all the things a family does. That is what we are supposed to be like. That is what we're supposed to be like. Jesus is our brother, and the brother of my brother is my brother. Just just think about that. Okay? The old saying goes that you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your family. I never heard that before. My wife was reading this, and she wrote that in the column next to it, and I thought, I've got to put that in because that's brilliant. <laughs> How have I lived 34 years and not heard that? You can pick your nose, but you can't pick your family. I'm going to use that one over and over again. That's what holds a lot of us back. This is what holds a lot of us back. The people sitting around you are probably not the people you would choose. If we were honest with ourselves, you would not choose them. This is not who you'd make a church out of. The people sitting around you are probably not the people you choose at all, but God chose them for you. You need their gifts, and you need their sanctification. You need them in your life badly. That's why they're here. God loves you. He knows what you need, and you need these people. These are the people that you need. Families don't break into subgroups. They don't just have fun. Families do things together, all kinds of things together. Their communal life covers every possible daily circumstance. Our Father doesn't want us to just be friends. He made us siblings. And he doesn't want us to isolate ourselves around those siblings that we have the friendliest affection for. Right? I don't allow that in my house. I don't allow two of my sons to spend all their time together because it's unhealthy for everyone else. We have to think beyond our personal preferences and the easy, safe selfishness we're all used to and move toward loving everyone who attends our church like an actual sibling. This is what we need to do. The absence of friction in our community stems from a lack of openness and biblical vulnerability. The more intimately we live in community, the more sin will occur against one another, the more the gospel will get preached, the more grace will be extended and received. We keep people at arm's length, protecting our egos, choosing ease over difficulty. We avoid the sanctification that many of our fellow churchmen would provide us. We need to ponder what true friendship actually means. Some of our relationships need to move out of the friend zone to real Christian intimacy in the gospel. Many of our marginal relationships with fellow church members need to be fostered. 
Some people avoid conflict because they fear it or they think conflict is sinful in every circumstance. I mean, I'm literally standing here saying we need to have more conflict. I'm not joking. (laughs) And I'm sure some people are thinking, what in the world is that guy talking about? But see, peace only comes in two ways. After war or by avoiding entanglements. Any nation that has peace has it for two reasons. They're staying out of other people's business or they've fought a war and they've either been defeated or they've conquered and now there's peace. Relationships are the same way. People are the same way. You only have peace in one of two ways. You make peace by struggling together or you just avoid entanglements. Then life is happy and easy and fun, but there's this sense of isolation that (laughs) begins to develop. We avoid entanglements, so our unity is weak. This is a small church. How well do you know everyone? Most people. Some people. Anyone. How is God at work in everyone's life? Most people's. Some people's. Anyone. How are you regularly ministering grace or receiving grace from everyone? Most people. Some people. Anyone. Another thing that holds a lot of us back is the idea of family, right? You have real flesh and blood siblings, mothers, and fathers, and they may be the reason that you hate the idea of a church as a family. I understand this. I understand this. I understand how families work. Most of us don't like this idea of church as family because, well, have you met my brother, right? Have you met my dad? You have no idea what my mom did to me. So the idea of talking about us as a family is scary and frightening. People don't like that. Whereas growing up, they had friends that we're easy to get along with. And I think most of us gravitate towards friendship in in church instead of family because we have better experiences with friends than we do with family members. But what we need to comprehend is that God himself thought of this. He thought of this before he made us. Okay, he fulfills every possible relationship that you can have. Jesus is the ideal spouse. Jesus is the ideal friend. Jesus is the ideal master. He's the ideal slave. God the father is the ideal father. The Holy Spirit is the ideal friend. He's also the ideal coworker. If you have trouble in any possible relationship, you feel burned, you feel backstabbed, you feel let down. God provides a positive experience in any possible relationship that you can have. And I think the more we're honest with ourselves and the families we were born with and deal with some of the issues we have there and look at how God fulfills those relationships, I think the idea of us being a family becomes much easier. Uh, becomes much easier. I know people whose idea, like the idea of a father was so terrifying to them that the more you talked about that, the further they got. But once you dealt with the issues in their life with their own father, they saw that God is actually a perfect father, right? It breaks down barriers. They're more comfortable to address things that way. Are we living lives of vulnerability? Allowing others to see our weaknesses and failures so that we might rally around grace. That is what I want you guys to comprehend, to to question in your own lives. When you get together around a hobby, a sporting event, or wine tasting, everything is upbeat, it's friendly, it's casual. But when you open your life to others, your struggles, your fears, your sins, etc., when you get together to study the Bible, discuss Satan's lies, your indwelling sin, real sanctification can happen because you're giving and receiving grace. That's supposed to be the thing that makes us us. That's supposed to be the thing that defines this church as a church and not just a club. Grace is the gospel. Grace is not niceness. Grace is not painless. There's a lot of people who think grace is just this, like, warm, fuzzy kittens and cotton candy and wedding cake. 
And, and I mean, and it is some of the time, cotton candy and wedding cake. But that's not, if you look at the gospel, Jesus, the pain that he suffered, what he endured, why? I mean, you look at it, grace is not painless. Grace is not always fun. Um, at one point, Jesus wants to avoid the grace as much as possible by asking his father to take it away from him. But, but he endures it, okay? And so when we're living in a situation where we're giving and receiving grace, it's not painless, but it's necessary. You can't avoid it. You need it. You need to seek forgiveness. You need to live in such a way as where you're being vulnerable to give it and receive it. A culture of fear develops when we don't want to rock the boat or we don't want people to think less of us or we don't want to be bothered with other people's issues. We fear one another instead of God. We fear rejection. We fear humiliation. We worry about offending one another's doctrine or exposing ourselves to debate or rebuke. We fear being ostracized. We fear the weight of other people. Right? This is what Dean, is, Dean and I realized a year ago. He said a number of times. He, even he and I. I had a problem, I, I personally, I didn't go talk to him. I Googled it. How do you fix blah, 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 blah. Right? I go on Amazon. I buy a stack of books. And in isolation, all by myself, I work on my problem. And that's not really, right? I fear people. And this is what it's, oh, this last year has been all about. We can't fear other people thinking less of us. We go back to being partakers of grace. We're all wretched people anyway. I love you all, but you're wretched. Okay, that's what brought you here. And that actually, that makes me a lot more comfortable to tell you about my own wretchedness. Christ came to take these walls down, the shame, the guilt, the fear, so that we could live openly as a, as a real family. We are not strong. We are not wise. We are poor in spirit. We are sick and dying of sin. We are all saved by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to assemble around that. We need to rejoice in that sharing in that, applying that truth to every area of our lives under the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a fellowship of the gospel. We are all partakers of grace. We need to comprehend that. We need to rally around that. We need to form a fellowship around that. Now, that is the foundation of our fellowship, but the purpose of our fellowship is the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He goes on to remind them this partnership that they've had since the beginning has been towards one end, helping him spread the gospel and validate that it's true. That was what the Philippian church was all about. This is what he wants them to remember. This is what he wants them to go back to, to start to relive. The Philippians were united together to confirm the validity and truth of the gospel as they worked in fellowship to spread the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ throughout the world. That's what the Philippians were all about. They were losing sight of that mission as their unity ebbed away. We don't have a vision for mission because we, don't, we are not unified like we should be. I think a lot of us want to do something in, as far as missions go, and I think there's a lot of confusion about what that ought to look like, and I think it stems from the fact that we're not really living in this fellowship of the gospel like we should be. I think one problem comes from the other. When the Philippians rallied around the gospel, they were joyful in the midst of very difficult circumstances, which we're going to get into in week four. They received the empowering grace of God and worked together to graciously support the work of the gospel. They needed to restore it. We need to develop it. Previously, the Philippians shared a common life, receiving grace from God and extending grace to their brothers and sisters. This is what koinonia is. This is what Christian fellowship is, the receiving and giving of grace. As I said last week, we all need to hear the gospel again and again and again and again and again and again. I could go on. 
life happens, and what I need to know is that Christ is the Lord. I need to know that. I need to hear that. That he is in control. Because most of my life seems like no one's in control. I need that grace. I need you to preach that grace to me. We need to center our life, our community, around the giving and receiving of grace so that we can be the kind of fellowship that God intended us to be. I need fresh stories of God's power. I need them. I need to know that he is the Christ, that he did suffer and will wipe away this sin that I just committed that I can't get over. Right? That's the gospel that we preach to one another. That's the grace going back and forth in real gospel fellowship. But how are you ever going to know that I'm in need if I keep you at arm's length? How am I ever going to know that you need the bread of heaven if I don't know you're hungry? How are we going to be unified around the doctrines of grace unless we study them together and apply them together? You partake in the same grace that I do. What or who could confirm the truth for me in times of doubt? Right? This is going back to the, I go looking elsewhere for the answer. Who else can say to me, the words of grace that I need in a particular moment than other, better than other people who experience it themselves. Right? You know better than anyone else in the world, better than psychotherapists, doctors, physicians, when I'm really struggling and when I'm weighed down by circumstances, who knows better than you guys? Who knows for you better than me? One another. I need the grace of the gospel. You need the grace of the gospel. That's why we're all here. Our need is what brings us together. So what is our mission? What's Redeemer's mission? Pleasure? Fun? Good times? I ask that question because I act like that most of the time. Right? This is my, I have a job. Well, I don't have a job right now, but I've had jobs. (laughs) I forgot about that. Yeah, I don't Check that off. Right? I have jobs. I have, a, I have an extended family. I like this because you guys like my Lord and I like your Lord and we have a good time together. And for years, that's, I mean, and I'm, when I'm honest with myself, that's what a lot of this has been about. We need to live our daily lives on mission, partaking in grace, fellowshipping around the gospel. We need to proclaim its truth as we fight Satan's lies together, live out forgiveness together in open, vulnerable community, confession repenting, rebuking one another, admitting our doubts, sharing our fears. And the more unified we are around the grace of the gospel for one another, the more mature we will become in working shoulder to shoulder in compassionate works of love in the community. Okay? We learn how to do it here so that we go out there and we do it. And this is what I've been struggling with for years. Is we can't suddenly just become missionaries in the world. If we're not, we haven't developed the muscle mass to lift the concerns of the world because we barely, right, lift one another's. And we do. I don't want to throw everyone under the bus, but I think we're very immature in this area. I think there's a lot of growth that could happen. I'm not here to condemn having a good time, by the way. (laughs) What would I do for the rest of my life? I'm not here to tell you that you shouldn't have friends. That's ridiculous. I don't want to imply that no grace is ever shared here at Redeemer. I don't want to make anyone feel like everyone is ostracized and there's all this secret hate going on or anything. (laughs) It's a blessing and it's refreshing to get together over shared interests and enjoy God's creation. It just, it is. It's good for us. But we can't confuse that with meaningful Christian fellowship. Okay? I, I love going to Dean's, watching a Hawks game. I've been there with a lot of you. It's amazing. We should do that as often as we can. 
In two months, we will. But that's not the kind of Christian fellowship that makes us us. It just isn't. For years, I thought I was fostering Christian fellowship by opening my home, letting my amazing wife make amazing food, making drinks, listening to good music, hanging out. I love, I love the sound of adult laughter. I love it. And I love putting people in a room where it happens. But as the years have mounted here, I'm troubled by what's missing. And I believe what's missing is deep, common life shared in the giving and receiving of grace. And I don't think I'm alone. That's why I'm preaching this today. I also don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. It's not like you either get together to comfort one another and confess and cry over your sins and study books in the Bible. And then, right, that's Tuesday. Then Wednesday, you go out to happy hour and have a good time. I, I don't think right, we should have that kind of dualistic life. But I think we need to have a more dynamic life. I think for, far more of what we do could be more serious about the gospel. And, and I think we could do a lot more together. I think both are needed. We have to rally around the central unifying theme of our lives. Paul says in verse 6 that Jesus, who began a good work in them, would bring it to completion. Jesus finishes what he started. We have to return to our knowledge of the gospel from last week. Okay, I'm saying all of this, and how many of you are wondering how? It's the how part that always gets me when I do these sermons. But the, I thought this through by the, by the leading of the Holy Spirit. We go back to the gospel from last week. How do we do what I'm talking about? True fellowship is participating in the gospel. Um, Jesus entered the story as an obedient slave who wasn't hamstrung by his own self-importance or his fear, right? He didn't come to do his will. He came to do the Father's will. He didn't stay in heaven. He came down and walks, walked amongst us. And so if we want to know how to get involved in people's life in an open and honest way, he's the one we should ask. I am not here to offer you answers, specific answers. I'm here to tell you who has the answers. And we look at the gospel, we look that the Lord of heaven and earth didn't stay in heaven. He didn't stay away. And when he came here, he didn't come here just to have a good time. He had a good time while he was here, but that's not the only thing he came to do. And he served. Nobody served like he did. And if, and if we're all befuddled as to how to do it in the context in which we live, he's the one that we need to go to. He's the one that we need to study with this in mind. How, how do I live such a selfless life? How do I give myself? How do I not think so highly of my own time, my own interests, my own comfort? He endured so that in our weakness and lack of understanding, he might draw near to us by the Holy Spirit to give us understanding and strength. That's what the gospel is all about. Here we are in our weakness, and we need to look for him, to him for strength. This is why Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Our weakness binds us to him and ought to bind us to one another. I think we should all start praying this way. That's how the unity and the bond of spirit works. We all have the same need, true gospel fellowship. And he's the only one that's going to give it to us. And I, and I believe if we cry out to him in, in that need, he will respond. Jesus was exalted, furthermore. He rules and he reigns. This is the other rail of the gospel. He's the Lord. Okay? He's Christ in his humiliation. He's Lord in his exaltation. That's why St. Paul said in Philippians 3.20 that we are the commonwealth of heaven. Our Lord stood above Rome and he stands above America. The kings of this earth do not hold our ultimate loyalty. Satan and his lies have no hold on us. 
we worship Jesus as he tears down our idols. Okay, that's the other half of this. We cry out to him as to how might we serve one another. And we constantly praise him for who he is in our life. We put him first. If we put him first in reading and prayer and fellowship and your communion with your, your spouse and friends, if we constantly are having the lordship on our, on our tongues, if we're talking about that, it pushes back the fear. Right? Darkness casts out fear. And the more we lift him up, the more we praise him, the more we get together and sing, the more we get together and talk about how amazing he is and look at how he delivered us from such and such, we lift him up as Lord, and it comforts all of us. I don't know how many times where what I needed when I was with some of you was comfort, and all I wanted to talk about was Seahawks because I was safer, right? Talk about literature or something. What we all need to do is be more honest and open about what we need and feed one another, feed one another. As I've studied this letter, I'm struck by how the Philippians rallied around grace, and that's what made them such a famous fellowship. And we need to be more intentional. The more we come together as partakers of grace, fellowshipping in the gospel, the more joy we will experience, the more unity we will have, the more potent our community will be in the Northwest. People don't want to inconvenience others. They don't want to burden others. I know that this is true. But what if we sought opportunities to be burdened? Right? I know a lot of times I have things that I need, and I don't want to bother people because I know how busy you are. And, and I think this holds a lot of us back. Because, like I said, we're kind. We're polite. I don't want to call you guys up when I know you got a lot going on and bother you. And I think that holds us back. But, but what if we lived in such a way as where we were looking for opportunities to be burdened? Right? We were helping lift that burden off others right, by just going after it. I, I know recently here... There was one mom who knew another, right, mom A, knew mom B, needed to go out with her husband. So she called her up and said, I will be there at this time on Friday. I'm taking your kids, and you go out with your husband. She didn't ask. <laughs> she told her. Luckily, the mom B didn't charge her with kidnapping. I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? She saw a need, and she went after it. And, and I mean, when I think about that, when I think how simple that is, how straightforward that is, just living with your eyes open, living with your ears open, listening to what people are struggling with, listening to what they're praying about and how they're praying it, you can find opportunities all over the place. You can find all opportunities all over the place. So I want you all to go home and consider what I have said. How can you draw nearer to one another in true fellowship? How might you move beyond friendship to, the, to act like God's family? Selflessly serving one another, holding each other accountable to sanctification, ministering grace to one another, honoring our humiliated and exalted Lord together, clinging to our unity in Christ as partakers of grace together. How can we do a better job? We all want to do something as a church to spread the gospel. The missionary work of the Philippians was at stake because they were losing their unity as a gospel fellowship. I believe that until we begin to truly live in deep fellowship of the gospel, we too will be anemic and befuddled in the area of missions. I think it will just go on and on. Once we begin to rally around the ministry of grace to one another more, uh, we will become equipped to offer grace to the community. We have everything we need because we are constantly in need, and Jesus is constantly giving us the grace we need. We have everything we need. We have it. This is what he's trying to tell the Philippians. You don't, there's nothing else. You don't need to come to some knowledge. You don't need to become wiser. You don't need to become more sanctified. 
you have everything you need to be a gospel fellowship and to take that to the streets. You have it because you are all partakers of grace in Christ. You have everything you need. We have everything we need because we are constantly in need. And Jesus fulfills those needs with grace. So let us rally around that and go to work. Let's rally around that and sing to God. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the good news of your gospel and the record you've kept of the Philippian church, Father, in which that gospel seed took root and grew up to be a beautiful plant, Father. I pray for the gospel that's gone into each of our hearts that lives here in our midst. Father, that we would water it, that we would tend it and care for it, that we would weed it, that we would extend grace to one another, that we would be open and vulnerable, giving each other opportunities to be ministers of grace. I pray, Father, that you teach us to rally around our exalted Lord and his goodness and his mercy that we know all too well. I pray, Father, that you help us to get over our fears of of being a family, our fear of man, our fear of rejection, our fear of shame. And I pray, Father, that unite us, unite us in our minds as we are in our hearts in Jesus Christ, that we might extend grace to the community of Linwood. Amen.